Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 49 for September 28, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. 17 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the threat from jihadist groups is more diverse and challenging than ever. Washington continues to pursue counterterrorism alliances with regional states, but some observers question whether these partnerships have helped or hindered the fight. Meanwhile, jihadist strategy continues to evolve with unprecedented mobilizations in Iraq, Syria, and Libya, leading to a new challenge of radicalized returnees. Many partner nations around the world, and especially in the Middle East and North Africa, have been both with and against the United States when it comes to counterterrorism since 9-11. They both help U.S. efforts in some areas and hinder them in others. If you look back, the United States has not succeeded in disrupting or preventing a single terrorist group relationship. Not a single one. They have always either prevented it themselves or they've had their own internal problems. We have not had any success in this realm. That was Stephen Tankel and Tricia Bacon, terrorism experts who joined a lively Washington Institute forum on the future of regional cooperation in the war on terror at our office in Washington, D.C. on September 14, 2018. We'll hear the full event, including analysis from Matthew Levitt and Barack Mendelson, after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from Matthew Levitt, former Wexler Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute's Jeanette and Eli Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. He's the editor of the recent study, Neither Remaining Nor Expanding, The Decline of the Islamic State. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Uh, I'm Matt Levitt, uh, Director of the Counterterrorism and Intelligence Program here at the, uh, at the Institute. And I'm very, very pleased to be joined today with three uh, really tremendous scholars uh, who have three fabulous books uh, that you should all read, but much more importantly, you should all buy. <laughs> Uh, and we will take the opportunity of um, leveraging some of the ideas in these books to have a conversation about the future of regional cooperation in what we at least used to call the war on terror. And um, I think it's a op- great opportunity to do that for reasons I'll get into in a minute. Uh, Stephen Tankel uh, is uh, an associate professor at American University, an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, a senior editor at War on the Rocks, former senior advisor at the Defense Department, uh, and his new book is With Us and Against Us, How America's Partners Help and Hinder the War on Terror. Brock Mendelson is an associate professor of political science at Haverford College, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and the author of the forthcoming book, Jihadism Constrained, The Limits of Transnational Jihadism and What It Means for Counterterrorism. And Tricia Bacon is an assistant professor at American University School of Public Affairs, a non-resident fellow at George Washington University's program on extremism, and the author of Why Terrorist Groups Form International Alliances. Uh, and I recently edited uh, the Washington Institute's uh, monograph, uh, Neither Remaining Nor Expanding, uh, based on our counterterrorism lecture series. I think that uh, it's an apt opportunity to have a conversation like 
like the one we're having today. First of all, uh, we just marked the uh, anniversary uh, of 9-11. Second of all, uh, we're hoping to hear any day now about the final draft of the U.S. government's uh, new counterterrorism strategy. And as that nears completion, some of the ideas we'll be discussing today are some of the very ideas that they are are still hashing out uh, for that strategy. Uh, The State Department just signed today its latest memorandum of understanding on counterterrorism cooperation, in this case with Indonesia. And just as the uh, counter-ISIL coalition uh, starts thinking about how to shape its future mission, it has announced its 79th member. Watch out, Islamic State, here comes Fiji. So um, I'm reminded about 9-11. I was, I was at FBI and counterterrorism at the time. Uh, I led the analytical team uh, for Flight uh, 175, United 175. Um, and it's amazing to think today where we are now and what the world was like then and what the nature of international cooperation and counterterrorism uh, was then. But far and away, this was at the time and even remains to this day the largest uh, global investigation of its kind literally spanning the globe uh, back and forth. Uh, I myself only narrowly avoided getting deployed abroad at a time and a place that I did not want to go. Um, And we had tremendous international cooperation at a time when people were amazed that such a horrific act of terrorism uh, could occur. Um, There was a sense of what happens abroad can impact U.S. national security. So, for example, think about the uh, conversations and the actions um, that went on about uh, Saudi textbooks, uh, Saudi international financing for uh, Salafi, uh, not just Salafi jihadi, but Salafi ideology uh, around the world. Um, And if you fast forward to today, It's pretty amazing that for all of the amazing tactical successes, the incredible reorganizations that we have seen as a counterterrorism community here in the United States and internationally, the tremendous amount of time and effort we have spent here in the United States in trying to help bring our allies along, build up their capacity, enable them to get to a level where they can um, provide really uh, added value on these international investigations, it is amazing to recognize, and General Nagata stood right here just a few weeks ago and was very clear that the rise of the Islamic State, the rise of ISIS at the time, before it called itself the Islamic State, was a strategic surprise for the U.S. intelligence community. That's that's humbling. It has a lot to do with the corrupt and incompetent governance of Assad in Syria, and of the then Maliki government in Iraq. But it has to do with some larger issues that I think deserve our attention today. The fact is that right now, per the title of our book, so it better be the case, ISIS is neither remaining nor expanding. But you have still the ISIS provinces, which remain a serious threat, which remain maybe not in the same way, but connected sometimes to one another, sometimes still to the core. Look, for example, at the uh, ISIS province in Sinai, which is getting an influx, not in the thousands or the hundreds, but the several dozens of uh, foreign terrorist fighters 
uh, exiting foreign terrorist fighters, let's call them, not necessarily returning because they're from uh, Asia, from the Caucasus, uh, from Russian-speaking former Soviet Union countries. They're not returning to those countries, but they're exiting Syria and Iraq, and in many cases, in the dozens, they're going to Sinai, perhaps because the Sinai province demonstrated its willingness to target a Russian target in the Russian airliner, perhaps because that's a place where they had connections, uh, people they had fought together or trained together with uh, in Syria and Iraq. Remember what the relationships that were built in the training camps in Afghanistan ended up creating, and think about how much more complicated, exponentially more complicated, uh, the relationships that have been built over the past 10, 15 years uh, have become. Um, this issue of the returning and the exiting foreign terrorist fighters is a very, very serious one, even though the numbers come returning to the West have not um, turned out to be quite as uh, uh, high as we had feared. It has led us to really focus our efforts on borders, on biometrics, on having very, very good information on very specific individuals. Before he left uh, directorship of the National Counterterrorism Center, Nick Rasmussen was very blunt about the fact that one of the intelligence community's areas of focus was shifting already from being on top of as many of the foreign terrorist fighters as possible to having really, really good information about some of the most dangerous people with particular skill sets who might be able to do particular damage if they were to be able to travel without us knowing about it. And of course, various different types of intelligence sharing, making that faster, making that more efficient. Those types of things mean that international cooperation, regional cooperation in countering terrorism is no less important today than it was in the past, arguably much more important. Think, for example, about the transnational nature of some of the most dangerous plots that we've seen, some that did succeed and some that didn't. People tend to focus on the plots that succeeded in Belgium and in Paris, and they forget about the plot that preceded those in Verviers that was foiled pretty much by mistake in January 2015, which was the wake-up call for European counterterrorism authorities about the transnational nature of the threats from ISIS and like-minded uh, Islamist terrorist groups that had come to Europe. Think more recently about the 2017 Australian airline plot, not only about the technological advances that our adversaries had come up with to evade our countermeasures, uh, but the fact that for an uh, aviation industry, which is transnational by definition, to be able to cope with this, you're going to need a transnational approach, transnational legal framework, uh, etc., and finally, we really are at the precipice of having to have a serious discussion about what to do next with the Counter-ISIL coalition. Most people see this as a tremendous success and something that should be leveraged to continue to deal with the next iteration of the threat, even after the collapse of the Islamic State as a state. It kind of is um, uh, similar back in the day, if you can, if you can flip your lens to uh, what al-Qaeda was thinking about after the defeat of the Soviets in Afghanistan. They had built up Maktab al-Kidmat and this international network of facilitation, and there was a big debate between Abdullah Azam and bin Laden about how to leverage it next. Not about whether or not it should be leveraged, but how to leverage it next. We are having, from our side of the uh, problem set, a very similar conversation now. 
Speaking here in July, General Nagata took stock of U.S. counterterrorism efforts to date, and he noted that while we have accomplished much, after nearly two decades, we still have to ask ourselves, quote, why is terrorism today more widespread and more complex than when we began? Why has terrorism proven to be so resilient and adaptive despite our counterterrorism successes? And I think the answer is, in part, due to our inf insufficient emphasis on getting ahead of the problem set. That is, we have appropriately and understandably been so focused on stopping the next plot that we have not had time to step back and give sufficient attention to stopping people from being radicalized to violence in the first place. We need to keep focused on our kinetic options to stop the next attack because there are people who are trying to carry out attacks to be sure, but we definitely need to develop our non-kinetic toolkit to get ahead of the problem. And that is going to demand a very different type of international relationships, regional and international relationships, than the type that we've had, and arguably much less comfortable ones. Uh, in the words of uh, General Nagata and many others, we can't shoot our way out of this terrorism problem. Attacking terrorists, he reminded us, does not in and of itself create lasting strategic success against terrorism. In other words, it's not enough to stop plots. We need to shrink the population of possible extremists. And I think a useful way to think about this is to think about this in terms of tactical counterterrorism efforts and strategic counterterrorism efforts. Uh, and I think we can give ourselves really very high marks on tactical counterterrorism efforts um, and really very poor marks on strategic counterterrorism efforts. And when I think about some of the biggest problem sets that we have, you could plot these along a spectrum from purely tactical to purely strategic and several uh, in between. You know, we have a tremendous need to continue focusing on, on stopping terrorist travel, on increasing our biometric capabilities, on improving our ability to identify both very high quality fake passports and legitimate passports by dual nationals and others. Phenomenon that we see being employed by terrorists across the spectrum from ISIS and Al-Qaeda on the Sunni extremist side to Lebanese Hezbollah on, on the Shia side. That is a very clear tactical uh, objective. Uh, on the flip side, the need to, to counter violent extremism, the need to prevent people from being uh, uh, radicalized in the first place to identify when people are on a pathway to extremism for whatever grievance is going on in their personal life in the world and try and off-ramp them, that is much more of a strategic objective. And in the middle, we have things like dealing with uh, communication, the ease of communication on social media platforms, the problems of encryption. That has to deal with both very tactical issues communication uh, for plots, et cetera, and strategic issues in terms of the ability to just shotgun a broad message out there, not knowing who's going to read it, uh, but that it might resonate with someone and contribute to uh, radicalization and even mobilization to violence. And then there are very tangible uh, things we need to be focusing on uh, tactically, uh, criminalizing uh, foreign terrorist fighter activities, uh, so that we have laws to deal with exiting foreign terrorist fighters or returning foreign terrorist fighters, continuing to improve our AML-CFT, uh, anti-money laundering and counter-terror financing regimes, and again, investing significantly in our non-kinetic, in particular, our counter-violent extremism programs. And here I have to say, 
I think we need to be thinking about these things in kind of countering violent extremism terms, even if we don't use that particular uh, nomenclature, as opposed to terrorism prevention nomenclature, because the, the term terrorism prevention puts this squarely in the terrorism side of the ledger, and we will only be successful about this when this becomes a societal issue, where we are dealing with this as a local problem, and local people in libraries and schools and communities who see what's happening in their community are dealing with these problem sets long before they are an actual terrorism problem, when they are just a problem of someone not fitting into society. In the Middle East and around the world, we have let's be honest, fairly complicated partnerships <clears throat> with countries like Iraq and Egypt and Turkey <clears throat> and the Gulf states that typically involve significant tactical counterterrorism cooperation but limited strategic counterterrorism cooperation, especially when it comes to political and social reform within these and other countries. And let's not pretend that the West is immune Failure to acculturate immigrant communities into Western societies has led to previously unimaginable numbers of foreign terrorist fighters now exiting and returning foreign terrorist fighters from Western countries as well. And that has a lot to do with our need for some social internal reform. Back in the fall of 2017, the leadership of the National Counterterrorism Center uh, tasked NCTC analysts with grappling with the following question. How does it all end? In other words, when does the Salafi jihadi movement stop inspiring violence in the West, is how they put it. And the analysts went and they thought about it and they convened a conference of, of academics and they came up with two best case scenarios. I'll leave the other scenarios off the table for now because we're serving caffeine but no alcohol. The two best-case scenarios were, one, movement collapse because of repeated failure to demonstrate value in resolving followers' grievances, which to me seems exceptionally hopeful. And the second is a movement that reorients away from attacks on the West because the local environment provides more opportunities to achieve their goals. How can we better balance our often complicated partnerships with with countries that sometimes help and sometimes hinder our efforts, both tactical and strategic, uh, to counterterrorism. Counter we need to give more thought on our need to focus not only on building our own alliances, to which we give tremendous thought, but on how to break down our allies' alliances and to maintain that breakdown over time. And I think we need to give some thought as to how we can exploit and exacerbate the internal problems facing terrorist groups which we tend to not pay that much attention to. Sometimes we think they're 10 feet tall. For example, the challenges they face in turning disparate local successes into a broader political impact. Uh, and we have three really brilliant uh, thinkers and authors who've written books that touch on each of these uh, three points. Um, Nick Rasmussen, when he was uh, NCTC director, um, said something I think warrants repeating here, and I quote, we should all bring a good amount of humility to the project of de developing CT strategies touching on conflict zones like Iraq and Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, and the Sahel. As powerful as the United States is, it's still quite difficult to deliver outcomes in these conflict zones such that the terrorism threat will be eliminated. In other words, we can build partner capacity and we can share intelligence faster and more effectively, 
but truly altering the environment that gives rise to the terrorist threats we face, that's a much more formidable task. And engaging with our partners in the region in successful tactical counterterrorism, if not done with strategic goals in mind, can actually have very negative strategic counterterrorism effects. What's needed, uh, Nick Rasmussen said at the time, and I would add what is perpetually in short supply, is more resources, more time, and more patience. So with that, I'd like to call up my colleagues to each uh, provide some comments, uh, and then we will open the floor uh, to questions and answers. I think, Stephen, we're going we're gonna to start with you. Thank you very much. That was Matthew Lovett. Next, we'll hear from Stephen Tankel, an assistant professor at American University, an adjunct scholar at the Center for a New American Security, a senior editor at War on the Rocks, and a former senior advisor at the Defense Department. He is the author of the new book, With Us and Against Us, How America's Partners Help and Hinder the War on Terror. Uh, let me just begin by thanking the Washington Institute for having me here today. Thank all of you for coming out. Um, Matt, thank you for the, the kind introduction uh, and also for the really helpful framing remarks that you offered. <clears throat> you mentioned uh, in your initial remarks the, the new counterterrorism strategy that we are expecting imminently. And, you know, some some folks in this room may have more of a sense uh, than others about about what's going to be in that strategy. Uh, if it looks anything like the strategy that leaked uh, last year from the Trump administration, if it looks anything like the three previous counterterrorism strategies that have been released since 9-11, uh, it will uh, contain a healthy emphasis on cooperation from other countries, which is no surprise. Uh, the 9-11 Commission report uh, observed that most aspects of U.S. international counterterrorism efforts require cooperation from partner nations around the world. Um, and so that is, in many ways, unavoidable. Uh, the Bush administration, for all that it was sometimes uh, perceived to be or said to be unilateral, uh, sought a lot of support and assistance and cooperation from other countries. The Obama administration made working by, with, and through partner nations the cornerstone of its counterterrorism strategy. That was designed not only to share the costs and the risks of counterterrorism, but also to make counterterrorism more sustainable. The idea that by giving partner nations more of a stake in the fight, uh, that short-lived tactical gains wouldn't be so short-lived, that we would be able to uh, ensure that the vacuum that was created if terrorists were driven out of territory could be filled with something uh, positive and more sustainable. Of course, the record shows that, that you know, we've had some hits and we've had plenty of misses. Uh, and part of this uh, owes to the difficulty of the problem and part of it owes to, uh, I think, flaws in, in America's own approach. But a lot of it owes to the difficulty uh, that a lot of these partners uh, bring to the table. Soon after 9-11, George W. Bush stood in the United States Congress and said that nations of the world had a choice to make. They are either with the United States or they are with the terrorists. And this has since become, you know, you are either with us or you are against us uh, is, is the way we often remember it. The truth is uh, many partner nations around the world and especially in the Middle East and North Africa have been both with and against the United States when it comes to counterterrorism since 9-11. They both help U.S. efforts in some areas and hinder them 
in others. The challenge then for the United States is to optimize counterterrorism cooperation where it's good, to mitigate it where it's bad and where we don't have hope of improving it, and to get the most out of the trade space in between. How do we do that? Well, I would argue it begins with knowing what we can expect from our partners. It's not enough to say that they simultaneously help and hinder us, and so, well, it's a bit of a crapshoot and you never know what you're going to get. It would also be naive to pretend that we can have uh, one hard and fast rule or that we could quantify cooperation. As much as some of my colleagues in the political science space wanted me to try when they heard that I was writing this book and said, could you come up with some sort of like a rubric for, for grading countries? And the answer was no. Different groups pose different levels of threat and different types of threat to the United States. Some countries are more important to the United States for, you know, they're closer allies than others. Uh, some countries are purely counterterrorism partners. Other countries are partners with which the United States has much more dynamic uh, and uh, uh, multifaceted security cooperation uh, relationships of which counterterrorism is just is just one part. But that doesn't mean that we can't tease out uh, some propositions in terms of what to expect. And I want to offer four here today and then just conclude with a couple of implications in terms of what that means for United States strategy going forward. Before I offer those four propositions, let me say that when it comes to counterterrorism cooperation, uh, I believe that we need to marry two different sets of dynamics. Uh, one uh, is alliance dynamics, sort of the traditional dynamics that take place in alliances or partner relationships. The other are the dynamics that occur in conflict zone civil wars between the state where those conflicts are taking place and the non-state armed groups that are parties to that conflict, which is to say that we need to marry alliance dynamics with terrorist state relationships and understand how both inform the cooperation that partner nations are both going to offer to the United States and the cooperation they are going to seek from the United States. With that in mind, uh, let me offer to you four propositions. And, and I've divided these four propositions along four different types of counterterrorism. Uh, I think Counterterrorism sometimes gets reduced down to kill the bad guys uh, and, you know, or uh, share information and stop the plot, and it's obviously much more complicated than that. So first aspect of counterterrorism cooperation that I'm going to talk about are, are counterterrorism operations conducted by the partner nation, and, and these are going to seem pretty traditional to all of you. Law enforcement operations to arrest uh, uh, you know, terrorists or terrorist suspects or military operations to retake territory, capture or kill terrorists, efforts to thwart plots, efforts to uh, thwart terrorist financing, uh, to degrade and ultimately dismantle terrorist infrastructure. These are traditional counterterrorism operations. These are often the most seen as the most critical in the short term. Um, they are very often the most uh, uh, visible, and I would argue they are in many ways among the hardest for the United States to influence, um, which is to say those terror-state relationships matter more than those alliance dynamics that I mentioned a moment ago. What do I mean by terror-state relationships? Well, states may have different types of relationships with terrorist groups depending on the threats 
that those groups are perceived to pose to the state in question and also the usefulness that that uh, terrorist group may offer. And when I talk about threats, uh, it's not just uh, whether that group poses a threat to the state in question. It's what does that threat look like relative to other threats. And that's really critical. All of our counterterrorism strategies talk about shared threats. But the United States and a partner can share a threat. The United States can prioritize that threat um, and, and a partner nation may not. Take Yemen under the Saleh regime. AQAP, top level threat in Yemen for the United States distant third for the Saleh regime after the Houthis and the Southern Separatist movement. That matters. I'm not going to go through the different types of relationships that, that states may have with, uh, with partners because I'm mindful of time, but I'm happy to get into that in, in Q&A if folks like. Suffice it to say that, that I'll mention uh, just two. Uh, one is if they have a belligerent relationship, the group poses a high threat and is not very useful, um, then they're probably going to conduct some level of counterterrorism operations on their own. And if they have a collaborative relationship where the group is quite useful and does not pose a major threat, think Pakistan and the Haqqani network, then anything the United States does is probably going to be insufficient to move them off the dime. Second, Matt talked a lot about those tactical aspects of counterterrorism. I would put some of those under the bucket of tactical cooperation, intelligence cooperation, which includes intelligence sharing, acting on intelligence that the United States shared, access for intelligence officers. That's one thing that falls under that umbrella. Access, access to airspace, access to ground lines uh, of supply, access for drone strikes, um, access for U.S. forces either to conduct training or to conduct their own counterterrorism raids, uh, coordination on detainees. All of these are sort of more tactical, programmatic aspects. These are areas where alliance dynamics matter more, where the bilateral relationship matters more, where the strength of relations between epistemic communities, for example, uh, among intelligence officers in two countries matter more. It's also a place where U.S. instruments of statecraft like security assistance, matter more. So it's no surprise that cooperation in these areas is typically better than in others. Third, since 9-11, the United States has increasingly sought cooperation from countries outside of their borders, uh, joining the anti-ISIS coalition or coalitions in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, contributing to regional counterterrorism initiatives, or even providing diplomatic support to end civil conflicts where terrorists operate. Now, that diplomatic support is not new. Joining coalitions is not new. But now it is being done or it is being asked to be done for counterterrorism purposes. Here, traditional alliance dynamics matter, um, especially when it comes to things like free riding. Uh, but a country's regional threat perceptions also matter a lot. Um, so it's no surprise that the Saudis were more involved in the conflict in Yemen than they were helpful trying to end the conflict in Syria um, because of their concerns about Iran. And then finally, uh, countering violent extremism. I have very little good news to offer you on this front. Um, I agree it is absolutely critical. It is also really, really hard. Uh, this is the area where I was able to capture the least data because A, CVE initiatives take a really long time to bear fruit, and B, they're very, very hard to measure. Here's what I can tell you. Those of you who are familiar with the concept of CVE-specific initiatives, things like trying to address, you know, uh, to do de-radicalization or counter-narratives or things like that, 
states, when they believe they are under threat, are more willing to do those types of things. CVE-relevant initiatives, improving rule of law, improving governance, uh, socioeconomic reforms, regardless of a country's threat perceptions, at least when we're talking about countries in the Middle East, North Africa, very, very hard to get elites to, to undertake these types of reforms. And I would argue that this is an area where the United States has perhaps the least leverage because we are talking about trying to get other governments to change the nature of their polities and trying to get elites to make changes to how they govern in ways that will disadvantage them, their family, clan, tribe, sect, what have you. Which is not to say that we shouldn't be making the effort, but it is to say that we need to recognize we have never made this a top priority, and it is probably the hardest thing that we are trying to accomplish when it comes to working with other countries. I would argue that our approach up to this point has been about as tactical in CVE as drone strikes have been tactical to counterterrorism. It's never been a strategic initiative for the United States. Even if it is, I think we're going to have to be very, very sober about what we can accomplish. So where does that leave us? Let me just offer a couple quick points. First, when it comes to how we typically do our counterterrorism planning and strategies, there's a lot of focus on the threat, which is absolutely critical. And I'm really looking forward to what my co-panelists have to say about the nature of the threat. There's far less attention paid to actually understanding what we can expect from our partners. U.S. security counterterrorism policymakers and practitioners spend a lot of time trying to understand the threat determine what it is that the United States needs to counter that threat, and then go to uh, U.S. partners and say, here's what we want you to give us, and here's what we're going to give you in return. I would argue we need to spend as much time looking at what we can expect from our partners as we do trying to understand the threat. And we need to do that up front because it will guide the ways in which we approach our partner nations. It'll help us get to those areas where cooperation is good faster, and it'll help us plan for those areas where cooperation is likely to be bad. Second, um, talk about this uh, during Q&A if folks like. Uh, right now, our toolkit is not well-suited to getting the most out of cooperation. We're using the same instruments of statecraft that we've been using for years. There's a lot more we could be doing in terms of how we do security assistance, how we could do partner capacity building, and quite frankly, how we could be using coercive instruments with partner nations, because right now, one of the few coercive instruments we have is either withholding aid or laboring on country of state-sponsored terrorism, which doesn't really work when you're trying to work with partners. Um, and then finally, let me uh, leave you with this. The United States is transitioning uh, towards making uh, great power competition the uh, sort of primary area uh, in terms of security and defense policy, um, deprioritizing terrorism and counterterrorism. As somebody who works in the CT space, let me say it is about time. Um, let me also say this is probably going to make burden sharing from partners both more important and more difficult. Because counterterrorism is ultimately a political activity. We are trying to counter political violence. And so there are political trade-offs. And so, yeah, burden sharing is going to become more important. But the trade-offs that we're going to be forced to make with those other countries are only going to increase as we are asking other non-CT things of many of them. And so I would argue that makes understanding what makes them tick and the types of cooperation they are prepared to offer more important now than ever before. Thank you. That was Stephen Tankel. Next, 
We'll hear from Trisha Bacon, an assistant professor at American University's School of Public Affairs and a non-resident fellow at the George Washington University's Program on Extremism. She's the author of the 2018 book, Why Terrorist Groups Form International Alliances. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and do what I'm going to call a mental switcheroo. That is the technical term for what I'm asking you to do. And we've talked about the relationships between states, between governments. And I'm going to now shift us to talk about the relationships between terrorist organizations. And it's interesting because, you know, the the 17-year anniversary, any annual anniversary of 9-11 is a moment where you sort of reflect, you stop and think about what's changed and what's different. And in some ways, there's a lot of similarities, right? This is The jihadist movement is still, there's still a lot of um, internal divisions. There's still a lot of disagreements about priorities, about strategies, about tactics. And there's still a lot of plain old big egos and personality clashes, right? And that way, it's not that different from Washington. It's This is a problem. But there is some a significant difference, and that is we've created – there's a situation now where we have two major epicenters within the jihadist movement, right, in al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And both have experienced setbacks. Undoubtedly, both are struggling with losses. Both have ample opportunities for a resurgence and recovery. And one of the reasons that they do is that both organizations have built these networks of alliances. And these are relationships that can help groups to survive during lean times and to come back and resurge after experiencing setbacks. But one of the interesting things that's come up that was posed to me uh, in this panel and that's come up when I've talked about my research is what about the relationship between these two organizations? Right? What about this tumultuous alliance they had for 10 years and this very ugly public breakup they've had? What are the prospects for their alliance going forward? In 2016, sort of the giant in our field, right, the much-revered Bruce Hoffman, wrote a piece predicting that al-Qaeda and ISIS would really. And it provoked a really interesting discussion and debate within the analytic community that's continuing today, right, as the fortunes of these two organizations change. He called it a counterterrorism nightmare, and I think that most of us would agree that it could very well be that. So what I want to talk about today is what I see as the prospects for that alliance based in the research I did for my the book that came out in May. So let me define what I mean by an alliance when we're talking about terrorist organizations, right? We're not talking about NATO, although I'm not sure that's sort of the example people hold up anymore for an alliance, but we're not talking about that kind of relationship. We are talking about relationships that involve cooperation and established in mutual expectations of coordination and cooperation in the future, right? These are not one-off cooperations. This isn't sort of ad hoc coordination. This is an action by one group that inadvertently benefits another. This is an established partnership. And so in the case of al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, Bruce Hoffman argued that there were four reasons why the group may rely. Their ideological similarities are more significant than their differences. The differences that they have are more about clashing egos, namely between, between Zawahiri and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. The groups have the same strategy, in essence, and that there's rhetoric on both sides that suggests that they'd like to find some way forward in their relationship with each other. After he published this piece and outlined these four reasons, some, some really prominent scholars came back and said, eh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this is as likely as, as Bruce has thought that it would be. Interestingly, when you look at a lot of those arguments, they rest in the same ideas, but they come to the opposite conclusion. In other words, they say that the differences in ideology, the differences in strategy, the differences in priorities and tactics are much more important than the similarities, right? Um, 
I'm sure, with just sort of that very brief description of the debate, every person in this room has a view about the prospects for this. Everyone right now is saying, I'm with Bruce or I'm with the other side and this is what I think about this. And that's fantastic. I would say that this debate about this specific relationship is not unusual in its, essentially, its contents, right? This is what comes up when we talk about almost any potential alliance between terrorist organizations. What is the degree to which they share an ideology, strategy, priorities, et cetera? And it's interesting because I even watched this happen firsthand when I was in the intelligence community. We'd have these early indications that groups were in, in the early phases of creating this kind of relationship. And then there would be dueling analysis that would come out, one side predicting that the alliance would come to fruition and the other side predicting that it wouldn't. And whoever turned out to be right eventually would win and they would be able to, I don't know, brag for a few weeks and that would be great. But the other common scenario that would happen is an alliance occurs and then we retroactively say, oh, these are the common ideological, strategic, and priorities that these groups have, and this explains why they ally. Rarely is there an acknowledgment in those kinds of conversations that most of those commonalities existed before, and maybe even existed for years, but weren't sufficient to explain the relationship. So all that's to say, I'm not going to give you an argument about the prospects between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State by giving you an in-depth analysis of their ideologies, their priorities, their strategies. I think we could have a really exciting debate about the degree to which they are similar or different. But what I'm going to say is that that's not the fundamental framework to use to understand whether or not these two groups are going to ally. And I would actually point out that it's worth mentioning that when Al-Qaeda allied with Sarkawi's group in 2014, they had ideological differences, they had priority differences, they had strategic differences, and they had ideological commonalities, they had strategic commonalities, and they had priority commonalities. So I don't think that these are the key thing. And what I found looking at dozens, if not hundreds, of these relationships is that when alliances fail, there are ideological, strategic, and priority differences, and there are commonalities. And when alliance, uh, alliances occur, there are ideological, strategic, and tactical, and priority commonalities, and there are differences. No terrorist group is completely synced up with another terrorist group in this way. So I don't see these factors as good predictors of whether an alliance will occur or not. They can definitely affect the contents of an alliance, but I don't think that they are the key things to think about when we look at whether or not an alliance is going to occur. And specifically in the case of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, what I want to propose as a key thing for us to think about in understanding whether or not they're going to lie is the idea of the presence or absence of a rivalry between these two organizations, right? Rivalry fundamentally shapes how terrorist groups interact with each other. When the groups are in a protracted competition, when they are trying to get the same recruits, the same resources, the same territory, the same money, the same constituent support, they're in a competition with one another. Right? Sometimes this is even a violent, um, violent conflict between them. Sometimes they directly fight each other. Not always, though. Oftentimes, it's just sort of this competition in the same, what I would call, political market. Right? And of course, there are different kinds of rivals. We can have rivalries that are not of interest in this conversation, which would be a left-wing group versus a right-wing group, or a Catholic group versus a Protestant group in Northern Ireland. Those are rivalries, but I'm going to set those aside. What I'm talking about is a rivalry when groups are seeking a better position than one another within the same movement, within the same sort of cause. And the, the consequence of this is that they see each other as operating in a zero-sum environment. Anyone's gains is the other one's loss. So they measure themselves essentially relative to one another, and they understand that their rival's gains disadvantage them going forward. 
And what I would say is, does this sound familiar? Is this very much how Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have treated each other since 2014? When the Islamic State claimed itself as forming the caliphate, and more than that, having the caliph, that this movement should follow the Islamic State, it should, should subordinate itself, it should declare allegiance, the Islamic State was essentially saying, we are the head of the Sunni jihadist movement. It was actually saying quite a bit more, but that was one of the facets that it was saying, right? And that is the very position that Al-Qaeda has been seeking to have in the movement at least since 9-11, but if probably, some could even argue since its inception. It has wanted that leadership position. And so basically, they are now functioning as rivals. Now, rivals can and they do ally. Being a rival doesn't mean that you can't form an alliance. We see this happen all the time. If you look within a lot of civil wars and conflicts, you see warring parties will ally with each other for certain periods of time. And interestingly, when they do, the way that they justify it rhetorically is they start to point out all their strategic commonalities, their, maybe their ideological or ethnic commonalities, their priority commonalities. They point to those very same factors, even though those existed before and they weren't sufficient for them to form an alliance. But alliances between rivals don't change the fact that they're rivals. In other words, they're still all about relative power. They're about sort of real politique calculations, about trying to maximize what they can gain, trying to manage exploitation. And it really circumscribes these relationships when they do form. In other words, they ally very carefully with one another. It's selective and it's also very careful. And that's because these relationships are not particularly pretty, right? They're temporary, they're fluid, they're shallow. They cooperate in some realms, they still compete in others. They withhold certain things from their partners because they don't want them to get too strong because they could be rivals again tomorrow. So these are very sort of circumscribed relationships, but they certainly do happen. In contrast, what I would argue is when groups don't have these kind of rivalries, there is a complementarity to what they do. They may have different parochial agendas. They have sort of a broader shared cause, but they have different parochial. So they're not, they're operating in a positive sum environment. Your allies' gains are also your gains. You don't have to worry about the zero sum calculation that really can bedevil the rival dynamic. And there's still hurdles to allying. These are still very difficult relationships for terrorist groups to form. As you can imagine, they're not well positioned to do this. But they don't have to fear that their partners are somehow going to exploit them and get gains that can be used against them. And interestingly, Al-Qaeda has been very good at avoiding rivalry for most of its lifespan. It has sought to position itself so it's not a direct rival to most of the other Sunni jihadist organizations. You know, when it allies with a group like Al-Shabaab, it is essentially complementing with Al-Shabaab being able to recruit from East Africa and operate in Somalia in a way that Al-Qaeda couldn't do on its own. And that was its motive for allying with um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, too. Really bogged down by counterterrorism pressure in South Asia, it saw an opportunity in Zarqawi's ability to operate in what it viewed as a very important cause for the Sunni jihadist movement. And what I have found is that these alliances are much more guided by organizational considerations. Groups are motivated to form these kinds of alliances because they experience organizational weaknesses. They know they do, they identify it, and they're seeking partners that will help them. And this is one of the reasons why Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have emerged as sort of these epicenter of alliance networks is these have been groups that have been able to provide a lot of resources, tangible and intangible, to other organizations. Factors like shared ideology and shared strategy, they help guide partner selection. They sort of circumscribe who you look to. You don't see a lot of Sunni jihadist groups asking Hezbollah for help, right? And it's in part because there are these ideological considerations. But it's much, that is more circumscribing what alliances are possible than guiding who allies and why they ally. 
The other major hurdle, even in non-rival relationships, is the formation of trust. These are not open organizations, right? It's not easy for them to develop these kinds of ties to one another. And yet you can't have an alliance without it because there is this expe expectation for future cooperation. You have to believe, you have to trust that that's going to happen. So let me take a step back and say, how does this apply to ISIS? The nightmare scenario, the nightmare scenario of a, an alliance between ISIS and Al-Qaeda that really qualitatively changes the threat, the threat environment that we face, would require them to set their rivalry aside. And that is not an easy proposition, is it? One of them would have to relinquish their claim, essentially, to being the leader of the movement. And Zarqawi was willing to do that, even though he had such rock star status within the movement in 2004, he was willing to publicly subordinate himself to bin Laden, even if in practice that was a little more shaky, right? But it's very hard right now to imagine Zawahiri or Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi being willing to, to relinquish their claim and subordinate themselves to the other one. They would also have to find a way to repair the trust that was so badly ruptured in their breakup in 2014. And this would be complicated by the fact that trust usually involves some direct interactions. This is one of the reasons there were so many benefits to the safe haven in Afghanistan or, or to being able to be co-located in Syria. It allows you to build a track record of cooperation that allows you to trust another organization. And personally, I would recommend that Al-Qaeda and ISIS find a town where they have a meeting and that we get the coordinates and that would all be fine with me. But in reality, I think both groups are smarter than that and they're not going to do that. So they have much more limited, they're much more constrained in their ability to interact with each other and to rebuild the trust that has been so badly damaged by the two of them. On the other hand, if they remain rivals, which I think is the more likely scenario, that doesn't mean that they couldn't see windows for cooperation or a rival-based alliance in spite of all their differences. I think this is probably more likely to happen at local levels where both groups have affiliates and allies that are, are working in, near one another. But even if they did create the, an alliance, both would still want to be the leader of the movement, and thus their cooperation would be very careful and would probably be fairly shallow because they would recognize that any gains that the other one made would be essentially hurting them in the long run too. So it would still be detrimental to U.S. counterterrorism efforts, but I'm not sure it would be a nightmare scenario as terrifying as it sounds by the idea of al-Qaeda and ISIS forming an alliance. It would be a difficult and probably limited relationship. It would be much more worrying if they had a leadership change or some kind of enlightened leadership that was willing to set that aside and cooperate and form a non-rival alliance. And I think that it is nonetheless important, it's an important area to watch. It's something to keep our eyes on, in part because if you look back, the United States has not succeeded in disrupting or preventing a single terrorist group relationship. Not a single one. They have always either prevented it themselves or they've had their own internal problems, we have not had any success in this realm. And that these relationships are fundamentally shaping the threat environment that we operate in. So it is important to, to have these debates and these discussions. It's also important to start having a better counterterrorism strategy that includes efforts to disrupt these relationships. That was Trisha Bacon. Next, we'll hear from Barack Mendelson, an associate professor of political science at Haverford College, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and author of the forthcoming book, Jihadism Constrained, The Limits of Transnational Jihadism and What It Means for Counterterrorism. 17 years since 9-11, uh, I think, give us enough time to uh, reflect on uh, the evolution of the jihadi movement, the nature of the threat, 
what we can realistically expect to do in response to uh, that threat, given that this is just part of uh, dense international life. Uh, we need to see what worked, and we need to figure out what we should, uh, what we can still, what we still need to do. I argue that uh, if we look at the last 17 years, uh, to me at least it becomes very evident uh, that uh, transnational jihadism, primarily uh, in the uh, Islamic State and Al-Qaeda version, uh, transnational jihadism has been constrained. The war on jihadism, I think, was a relative success uh, given the many limitations that some of the solutions to the problem are solutions that we just can't make. A lot of that are solutions that require complete transformation of uh, uh, areas in the world which we can't even do social engineering in one state, so to imagine uh, re-engineering of many weaker states, that's going to be uh, more difficult. So I think that given that, we should rethink our strategy. Now, when we speak about terrorism, we normally, well, terrorism has two faces, and I think that we are looking primarily at one. Well, the first face of terrorism is terrorist attacks, and I think that that's the tactical dimension that was mentioned here, and I think that we are very focused on that. Now, while I can see the benefits of being uh, focused on that, I think that looking at war on terrorism only through this lens, first, it, uh, we're prone to fail, because no matter how many successes uh, you have, we still remember the few times that things did not work, and it in some way causes trouble in that uh, we are encouraging civilians' expectations for 100% uh, security, which we know is just impossible. But my issue is less with the focus on terrorist attacks. It's more on the absence of sufficient interest in the other face of terrorism. We need to all remember that uh, terrorism is there to advance political objectives. And we need to consider what the actors that we are facing want to achieve uh, and what is the best way for us to deny them uh, the objectives that uh, they seek. Transnational jihadi groups like uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, you could say almost are bound to fail. They have high and probably unrealistic expectations. They want to reshape world order. Most armed non-state actors uh, are trying to uh, either gain independence uh, or capture regime, but most of them are seeking a way to find a space within the international system, within the international community. Actors like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have a very different kind of vision. They have much greater, much 
broader expectations, and they are trying to reshape an order that will be based on religion rather than on the division of the world to separate states. So they want to achieve an order in which you have one caliphate that unites all Muslim states as one entity and that seeks to expand throughout the world so that they can fulfill the promise, make God's word supreme. This is a really high bar, uh, way too high. And given the scope of this enterprise, the strengths of the enemies of these movements, the meager abilities of the jihadis, it's clear that this is a challenge that requires them to get capabilities way beyond what they have now. They need to mobilize a large uh, section of the Ummah, of the Muslim uh, population, in order to actually be able to have these kind of political effects. But that's where they face three systemic problems that uh, make their ability, that really uh, reduces their ability to achieve uh, their goals. The first one is the power of national and subnational identities. These groups want to present an order that is based on religion, not on any uh, local identity belonging to a state, belonging to a tribe. They want to create an order that is based on people identifying based on their religion. The problem is that even though many Muslims throughout the world would like to see more Islam in their life, this is not the same as wanting to live under a Sharia law, definitely not in the really extreme version that uh, these groups are offering. And without making that ideational change, without getting Muslims to view themselves in the same manner as Al-Qaeda and ISIS would like, the ability to mobilize enough people is very low. A second obstacle is an operational obstacle, what I call the aggregation problem. Jihadi groups can have effects in different locations, but in order to actually achieve their objectives, they need to aggregate them. They need to be able to create strategic political effects that cross borders. And when they get to that, they have no strategy that can offer them a solution. And in my work, I try to uh, demonstrate looking at the different uh, strategic thinking uh, that we've witnessed among the jihadis in the last 20 years, and I try to, see, to show that none of them actually provide a sufficient uh, solution. Branching out made that uh, objective even more difficult to achieve. Al-Qaeda was under siege in Afghanistan, Pakistan, could hardly, uh, could hardly function. Branching out, establishing franchises was a natural response to a serious crisis that they faced. The problem was that when you localize the conflict, you might be losing the global dimension that Al-Qaeda promoted.
And so you have in the relationship between Al-Qaeda and some of its branches, you see how those branches assured Al-Qaeda's survival, but at the same time, they led to greater incoherence, ideological incoherence within the organization. Beyond the clashing egos and the different wishes of branches versus the uh, core, as we saw very clearly in the case of Zarqawi uh, and uh, Al-Qaeda. So, and to make the problem even more difficult, remember that in order to produce those effects and having a caliphate, they need a territorial dimension. But as you get a territorial dimension, you become more vulnerable to attacks of the United States and other states, especially those that enjoy air power that the jihadis just have no answer to. And so if territorial expansion is so hard and yet so central, we see the kind of difficulty that uh, transnational jihadism faces. And finally, the problem that they, a third problem that they face, the final one, is that since they have such high expectations, the least that they could do is unite. Right? They need manpower. They need to focus their efforts. But they cannot even unite. Moreover, it's not that they just can't unite. They often find themselves fighting each other. Much harder to make advances when you're busy fighting another jihadi group. The jihadis are even less likely to solve this problem because of the kind of religious discourse that they are using. When leaders lobby, uh, lob uh, accusations of infidelity against each other, excommunicate each other, how can they reach any kind of compromise? The moment you announce that uh, al-Zawahiri is an infidel, there is no way back. There is no reconciliation possible between uh, al-Baghdadi and al-Zawahiri. And because these are groups that are very ideological and very extreme, they use this discourse on a regular basis, and this discourse undermines any kind, uh, that undermines the potential for future reconciliation. You can add to that lots of other gaps, uh, conflict between the foreign fighters and the locals. Uh, locals are very unhappy with the inability of the foreigners to understand the local tradition, to respect the local tradition. So you have plenty of divisions within the jihadi movement that are unlikely to go away. The failure of the Islamic State uh, demonstrate how difficult their uh, task is. The Islamic State emerged at a time probably the most conducive to success. The United States was wishing to leave the Middle East, having uh, to get out of uh, Iraq. Uh, in Iraq, the Shia regime uh, was corrupt and marginalized the Sunnis. Civil war in Syria those were supposed to be the best conditions. And indeed, the Islamic State made a good run. But even that good run reached its end because eventually you produce a counter-response. 
to which they had no answer. So if the Islamic State, under the best circumstances that they could expect, failed, that's pretty telling about what we, uh, the prospect that they will actually have success in the future. So given that resolving the problem of jihadi violence is unlikely, this is something that we're going to have to learn to live with, try to minimize, but something that we're going to have to accept as part of uh, our life, we should settle for a second best. That's why I think that the United States should uh, promote a strategy of containment. This kind of strategy would be cheaper and without sacrificing effectiveness and without requiring the United States to be engaged everywhere all the time. At present, states are better positioned to handle domestic threats from jihadi groups. And they are better positioned to prevent the expansion of jihadi forces with no more than some assistance from stronger powers. This is the work of 17 years of counterterrorism that produced some significant successes. Look at the many regimes that were produced uh, as part of the effort to create, uh, to fight the uh, terrorist groups. For example, uh, regimes to deny their access to uh, funding, regimes that would prevent armed state actors from achieving, putting their hands on weapons of mass destruction, uh, strengthening of border controls all over the world, information sharing. A lot of the work already was already done, of course, should be deepened, but a lot of that was done to facilitate states taking care of local problems with only minimal external support. When needed, states could rely on regional powers and regional assistance to prevent jihadi threats from rising and from expanding in their neighborhood. Washington can offer logistical help, provide intelligence, and in extreme situations even offer air support. But it doesn't need to go any further. Instead, the United States should focus on, as I said, deepening those regimes, which means reinforcing that multilateral infrastructure that was introduced after 9-11. But the other focus should be on maintaining the capability, the American capability to prevent jihadis cross-border attacks, meaning cross-border expansion, and I would recommend establishing a multilateral rapid response force that is capable of tracking when a jihadi group might make a, might break out and uh, make a run that is threatening to create a rapid response force would be capable of quickly addressing a surprising jihadi surge. That was Brock Mendelson. Next, we'll hear the audience Q&A session moderated by Matthew Levitt. So let's try and put all of this um, theory into practice. Steve, you, you mentioned at one point that one of the problems is in how we all prioritize things differently. Mm -hmm. 
that might be a great subheading for the entire Syria conflict, right? Or ISIL, um, more generally. Everybody was against ISIL, just Turkey maybe didn't put it as number one or two, and et cetera. Um, as we think about the coming fight in Idlib, which maybe harnesses uh, a, an opportunity to reprioritize in many ways, certainly between the United States and Turkey, for example. Um, can you speak a little bit more to this prioritization theme as we get to this 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 moment in, in, in Idlib, which could be a really decisive turning point for good and for bad in, in, in a variety of ways? Um, Tricia, um, you talked about uh, local cooperation um, and uh, these terror alliances. And again, as I think about what's happening in Idlib right now, what are some of the potential outcomes once the Syrian regime wins this battle, which I think is a foregone conclusion, whether they do it quickly or slowly. The world has made it very clear they won't tolerate chemical weapons, but by definition that means that they're, I guess, willing to tolerate all kinds of conventional weapons. Um, those uh, terrorists who survive, are they perhaps more inclined to join with whatever remains, with the Islamic State? We saw people who were fighting first with Nusra or whatever it was called before or after, then moving uh, towards the Islamic State. Does that create an opportunity as the group that they were involved with effectively no longer exists? Does that present an opportunity? And uh, Barack, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll offer the first of what I imagine won't be the only challenge to your containment strategy. And that is that uh, the way I see it, after 9-11, we made it very, very clear that one of our big goals was to fight the enemy over there so that we didn't have to fight them over here. We're going to have a really, really strong away game. And now what we're finding is that FBI, for example, has more cases in every state across the country now than it did in the first few years after 9-11. And primarily, primarily, we're not concerned with people coming into the country and crossing our borders, but we're dealing with a homegrown violent extremist phenomenon where you can't stop ideas at the border. Um, and therefore, I worry that we are dealing with a problem set that, by definition, is not containable. So, Steve? Just and to clarify, are you talking a reprioritization on our end, on Turkey's end, sort of a scrambling of the board? However you want of... to answer it. I'm just trying to <laughs> Okay, I'm you're just to, saying I'm you're... trying to put some some current meat on some really, really interesting bones right. okay. that we just laid out you're, there. You're basically saying Idlib's Idlib's gonna happen and it could potentially scramble the board. Yes. Yeah. There's no potential there. Right. It's, uh, it's it's gonna happen and it will scramble the board. I, I think the issue there, um, is that at least from what I've seen, not just on on in terms of bilateral cooperation in the cases that I looked at for the book, uh, but also in sort of talking with European allies over the summer and in looking at the ISIL coalition, which I think very much proves this rule, right, of that you can have a shared threat. Everybody can agree ISIS is a threat, but very, very few countries actually prioritized it over the others. Hey, we got Fiji now. <laughs> Um, is that the convergences that have occurred and the, and, and the reprioritizations that, that, that have occurred, which may occur again um, in, you know, as, as it happens in the, and, and in the wake of, of that, have not necessarily had staying power. 
Um, I think that's right. That's part of the problem. In very, very few instances, have countries uh, reprioritized for the long term? Because in very few cases, have the threats that they face drastically changed? Um, and I'm not sure that that's going to be the case here either. Um, Turkey has increased. You know, it began taking ISIL more seriously when ISIL became a, a bigger threat. Um, but it still doesn't take it more seriously than it takes the Kurds. Um, Pakistan began taking, uh, you know, uh, jihadist terrorists more seriously as the insurgency in Pakistan got worse. But it still doesn't take it more seriously than it takes the India threat. Saudi Arabia started taking al-Qaeda more seriously after 2003. And for a while, I would argue it was sort of, you know, they, th that was their top priority. But um, competition with Iran has returned and al-Qaeda, you know, and even ISIS are probably secondary. Um, and, and so part of the issue with these reprioritizations is that they may create opportunities for increased cooperation, which, by the way, I think that we should take. Um, that's what I talk about when I'm, when I'm saying optimize cooperation. If there's an opportunity for increased cooperation, take it. But don't be taken in by the idea that shorter-term convergences – uh, or tactical shifts in terms of how states are responding to terrorist groups or uh, responding to them vis-a-vis -vis other threats that they might face should be seen as anything other than short-term um, because in most cases, uh, there is a return to the norm uh, with regard to sort of those longer-term, more historic and embedded challenges that these countries have faced. And I've seen nothing to suggest that we're going to have a drastic shift um, you know, in, as we sort of approach the next phase of the Syria conflict. It's interesting because if you just take a quick look at sort of the peak successes for al-Qaeda and ISIS in terms of their alliances, they come right after major successes, right? right after 9-11, al-Qaeda was able to attract partners that it hadn't been able to attract pre-9-11. ISIS was able to attract a number of partners in the wake of all of its tremendous territorial successes, right? So neither one of them is ideally positioned at the moment to be forging a lot of new alliances because they are in these periods of um, rebuilding. But what's interesting is in the environment that you're talking about in Syria, when you're experiencing that level of loss and that level of threat, I would expect to see the kinds of rival alliances that I talked about, these sort of opportunistic relationships, opportunistic cooperation to get out of the sort of the intense threat period they're in now, but I wouldn't expect a lot of those alliances and relationships to sustain after the threat has passed, whatever that aftermath looks like. So I would say that there will be more cooperation, but it'll be opportunistic and it'll have sort of those limitations that I talked about to rivals working together. This would kind of be like, you know, ISIL Yemen and AQAP tactical cooperation. When needed. When needed. Right. Okay. Barack. So your question was whether the problem is, uh, as we see it now, is really containable. Well, first I would say, uh, remember, my focus is not on terrorist attacks, but on the achievement of strategic goals of these groups. And I don't think that those attacks actually uh, lead to that uh, achievement of those goals. And as you mentioned, there are lots of cases that the FBI is dealing with, so apparently we are doing pretty well. Right? Yes, there are cases that we don't know of, but if you look at the 
uh, number of successful attacks, you know, we are so far doing pretty well. But let me add to that that containment could actually reduce uh, the threat of terrorism because there's going to be less American footprint and it might be that the jihadis will change their priorities. Uh, the United States is going to be a less attractive target as a result. Okay. Uh, so we'll open it up to questions and answers. We'll start with Patrick here. Just wait for a microphone to come to you, please, up here front and center. So I'm struck by how uh, little discussion there's been of state uh, support for terrorism. And that when uh, I think about uh, international cooperation against terrorism, what I find impressive is that uh, when I Iran decides that it's going to work with terrorist groups, it pays very little price for it. And in fact, can have quite an effect at multiplying its uh, state influence doing that. And uh, Iran has been quite effective at getting terrorist groups to cooperate across ideological barriers and by um, lubricating this with material support. Um, Iran's been able to work with groups that are uh, attacking each other and despise each other. Uh, and uh, frankly, I think that uh, Iran has been quite successful at uh, um, driving the United States out of the Middle East. And uh, certainly is perceived in the region as having been a victor and in inflicting defeats in the United States. I don't think that's a very successful approach for containing terrorism if it's seen as an important um, uh, way in which a state can uh, advance its interests. Comment, please. Comment. <laughs> um, okay. Um. <laughs> Well, first, uh, the Iranian threat is not the transnational jihadis. That's uh, one. And second, you're right. Uh, if we need to, uh, if we want to deal with some of the terrorism issues, we should deal more seriously with the Iranian issue. But that's really turning the issue on its head. It's not about terrorism. The issue is really Iran. And it does seem that the United States is now on a path to actually uh, do more about the uh, Iranian threat. So I, I don't think that that needs to be uh, necessarily a, a part of, a, uh, of my counterterrorism uh, strategy. But yeah, the United States needs to reconsider the way that it interacts with uh, Iran, understanding that supporting or sponsoring terrorism sometimes is a useful mean for states, useful policy instrument in making sure that we change the calculation of these regimes so that it won't be a useful tool for them. I would stay, say on the state sponsor front, having looked at the sort of from the 70s till now, that states are a mixed bag. There are a number of important instances where I would say states help facilitate relationships between terrorist organizations. I found very few instances where states can orchestrate them. They can provide safe havens, they can provide places where they can train together, they can provide money that sort of facilitates, but it's, they can't, they're not sort of the puppet masters in very many relationships. Conversely, a state, a group having a state sponsor can also make other groups not want to work with it. 
it creates trust issues. It creates concerns about that group doing things on behalf of that state. And it actually can disrupt relationships and prevent relationships that we think are going to happen. So I, I think it can, and obviously Sudan and Afghanistan, there's been plenty of places where state sponsors have really provided uh, a place for cooperation to occur between these groups where they build up these relationships. But it's much less common for states to sort of, sort of have the blind date where they bring two groups together and sort of get them to a lie, right? That is not what I have found is as common of a, that's a fairly rare um, dynamic. The groups have to sort of create these relationships amongst themselves. They may have the same state sponsor, but having same state sponsor doesn't mean that they ally with each other. Some of the exceptions, though, are, are telling, and, and I would put them under your rival-based mm -hmm. alliances. Yeah. If you think about uh, Iran helping to facilitate meetings and trainings with between Hezbollah and al-Qaeda leading up to the East Africa em embassy bombings, for example, perhaps the exception that proves the rule, um, but very, very telling and providing tremendous capability to a group that until that point had not carried out any spectacular bombings, meaning al-Qaeda had not uh -huh. uh, successfully until that point. And in terms of the uh, containment strategy, I think that at a minimum, Patrick's point, I think, is very strong that a, a, a group, wherever it is on the radical Islamist or other type of terrorism spectrum, a group that engages in terrorism that has a state sponsor at a minimum throws a massive wrench in our efforts to contain the problem by virtue of giving them access to intelligence and training and weapons and funding that are otherwise very difficult to deny them only through those types of otherwise effective uh, multilateral tools that uh, bodies that you uh, that you mentioned. Um, I, I would just make two quick points on the sort of on the the, the policy side of the equation. Um, the first is that states that sponsor terrorism, especially ones that do it for ideological reasons, are especially difficult to to deter from sponsoring terrorism, right? It is very, very hard to change their minds. Uh, Iran is a case in point. Pakistan is a case in point. The United States has thrown right the kitchen sink at that uh, in Pakistan and getting them to to you know end their support for Haqqani's Taliban, Lashkar Taiba has been incredibly difficult. That's number one. Number two, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be efforts there. But I think from a from at least from a jihadist group perspective, leaving you know the Lashkar and the Haqqani's aside, I mean this is not to say that uh, Hezbollah is not a, an incredibly dangerous group or that other groups that Iran sponsors aren't dangerous groups. But talking about the larger sort of al-Qaeda uh, ISIS phenomenon, uh, where I would argue that um, that from a policy perspective, I think the United States is sorely lacking is not in attempting to deter state sponsors of terrorism, but in lacking instruments and policies for dealing with states that enable terrorism but don't rise to the level of sponsor. Um, so states that that pursue policies that deliberately they deliberately pursue policies that create an enabling infrastructure and a, you know or a a space where terrorist groups can raise money, can recruit, can produce propaganda, um, but that don't necessarily rise to the level of sharing intelligence, providing arms, weapons. It's not a direct relationship. Um, think about right. I'm talking about Saudi Arabia. I'm talking about uh, you know. Yemen for a while there. I'm talking about Turkey, um, which is particularly difficult because it's a NATO ally. Um, and that's why, you know, I've, I, and I, in the book, I, I lay out a whole, uh, different range of, of instruments that I think the United States needs to create for dealing with states that, uh, that 
that create an enabling environment for terrorism but fall short of state sponsorship because right now we really have it's either nothing or we're going to label you a state sponsor of terrorism and that i think overlooks a whole raft of groups that exist in between and that we can't deal with mike craft right here and then we'll go in the back Thanks very much. presentations i'm mike craft a co-author with ambassador ed marks here of a recent book on U.S. responses to counterterrorism from Nixon to Trump. And I want to take up by the multilateral cooperation issue, which Professor Mendelssohn uh, mentioned. And maybe, Steve, you've got some comments. Uh, even before 9-11, uh, the State Department Counterterrorism Office, when Mike Sheehan, late Mike Sheehan was coordinator, tried to prom promote regional cooperation in Africa, Latin America, Asia. Um, and I think the effort is still continued. And there's been programs like uh, CVE programs. We've tried to work with other countries. Uh, and there's cooperation and information sharing, particularly with the British and the Dutch and, and some other countries. Um, I wonder if you have any impression of how that's worked. I mean, there's been some successes that have not been heralded. For example, while, shortly before the Benghazi attack, the Indonesians and Jordanians foiled major potential attacks against the American embassies and the Australian embassies didn't get much attention because the attacks were foiled and both countries have received a lot of training from us in the case of Indonesia, Australia. Um, do you have any gauge of measure on that? And then for, for Professor Mendelssohn, when you talk about the lofty goals of Al-Qaeda and others, I wonder if you're overlooking the aspect of the perspective of the foot soldiers for many of them, it seemed to be a vehicle for grievances. For example, um, Jessica Stern said in a talk once that a lot of these people who joined up with these groups are trying to reinvent, them, reinvent themselves. And in the case of some of the Belgian and French terrorists, a lot of them were petty criminals or trying to you know, be part of something better. I wonder if you could comment on, on, on those two aspects. Thank you. Um, sure. Uh so trying to promote regional cooperation is nothing new, although I would argue that it has take on, taken on added uh, importance and emphasis uh, since 9-11. And there have, been, there have been some efforts more successful than others. Um, you know, I, I would look at uh, efforts in Southeast Asia uh, from the middle of the last decade onwards um, as an area where, uh, despite the difficulties of getting ASEAN nations to, to sort of work uh, all that closely with one another, uh, progress has certainly been made. Uh, I think that in part owes to um, the fact that a multilateral framework existed there, but I think it also owes to the fact that Australia was able to act as a shepherd for facilitating that regional cooperation. Um, the Bush administration tried to replicate those efforts uh, in Middle East, in Africa, uh, looking for other regional enablers that could play that Australia type of role and found itself lacking because it didn't have a capable, um, you know, treaty ally that it could count on. Um, and there was also no country like Australia that was uh, sort of that seen by the rest of the region as both capable um, and uh, sort of benign uh, in terms of its engagement. Um, you know, the Saudis are, are going to ruffle a lot of feathers if you turn to them 
for that enabling role. I would also point more recently to some of the task forces that have been created um, and some of the regional initiatives like Amisom. Uh, Amisom, you know, in Somalia has has had mixed success. The problem is that once Amisom goes away, uh, there's nothing to fill that that vacuum. Um, there have been efforts, I think, in the Sahel to learn from previous uh uh, exercises there um, in in terms of regional cooperation and, and how that uh, has played into shaping the the G5 Sahel force um, but that's poorly funded and it's it's early days yet so we don't really know how well that's going to work um, there's certainly I think a push towards trying to promote this more than we've seen in the past and I think one of the potential uh, uh, follow-ons for the Anti-ISIS coalition is sort of a global coalition, but another is a series of more regional coalitions. Um, so talking about trying to you know, make sure that we don't lose the cooperation that has occurred there. Um, but this is really, really hard if you don't have a, uh, a again, a capable and uh, actor that is seen, by, seen as also benign or benevolent by countries in the region um, that can help move the ball forward. It also requires a lot of resources. The United States has been trying to do regional cooperation in terms of Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership Fund for years in the Sahel. Um, I saw a report I thought, you know, it, so, you know, somebody quoted and it captured it perfectly. Everything the United States has thrown at that, and it's thrown a lot of money, it's still a Band-Aid on a chest wound. Foot soldiers. Uh, I completely uh, agree with you that foot soldiers are important, but I think it just strengthened my point that there is significant gap between what might happen at leadership uh, ranks and the foot soldiers. Many people join these groups for a variety of reasons. They don't have to be ideological reasons. Uh, and what that should mean for us is that we, instead of thinking about just eliminating everybody that is a member, we can entertain different kinds of policies that will allow to peel off some of the foot soldiers that are not ideologically committed, that join for a different reason. That could be one way that we can weaken uh, these groups. Now, it's also important to uh, think about this in the context of franchising, because the f while Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State can franchise, and there might be more support at the leadership level to the global uh, view of these groups, the leaders of the branches are facing pressure from the foot soldiers to act inside those countries to further localize their conflicts. And in this way, those foot soldiers uh, are further increasing the gap or the incoher incoherence within transnational jihadi groups. Here in the back, we had a question. Thank you. Um, I, yes, I hear, I've heard a lot of people mention Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia only, I guess uh, I counted maybe twice or three, three times, and I thank you for mentioning that because um, when I was last in the Middle East, I had very little about Iran in terms of, um, in terms of uh, state sponsorship of terrorism and quite a bit about the situation in Yemen, not that Saudi Arabia is directly sponsoring um, terrorist groups such as ISIS or al-Qaeda, but the fact that Saudi Arabia's incursions in Yemen with the assistance of the United States has caused tremendous, tremendous rancor uh, in the Middle East. And how does this affect regional cooperation against terrorism? Um, 
and I would like to have someone address that. Uh, sure. Uh, so I, I have I, I, I discuss Saudi's involvement in the conflict in my book, both in I've got a chapter on uh, Saudi Arabia, which you know I think uh, it's titled "Arsonist and Firefighter," which kind of gives away how I look at the Saudi role in terms of counterterrorism, uh, <laughs> and 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 Yemen, um, uh, and and you know. I would make a couple points on, on Saudi's in, involvement in that conflict in, 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 with regard to regional cooperation. One is uh, the Saudis, and I alluded to this, uh, the Saudis were theoretically part of the anti-ISIS coalition uh, and, in fact, um, devoted a whole lot more of their military resources uh, you know, and manpower to, uh, in my opinion, helping to break Yemen. Um, uh, as opposed to fighting ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Number two, uh, their intervention in Yemen, although I don't think it has created the space that some people had feared for AQAP to advance. Uh, AQP, I don't think, is, has, has taken uh, and has been able to hold as much territory as we anticipated and hasn't been able to capitalize as much as some uh, analysts feared. Uh, it nevertheless has certainly contributed to a conflict environment in which uh, terrorism can continue to thrive. Uh, the third point is that at various times, the Saudis, and I should also mention until they sort of uh, reprioritized, and this is one where the reprioritization appears to have had some staying power, uh, the UAE was for a while, their forces on the ground were fighting alongside Ansar al-Sharia forces uh, from AQAP against the Houthis. So you had the Saudis and the and the Emiratis um, as you know, close counterterrorism partners fighting against the Houthis uh, on the ground in uh, Yemen alongside forces uh, that were foot soldiers for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, um, which, you know, that is, again, not the type of cooperation that we are seeking. Now, the, the Emiratis have since, like I said, reprioritized and, and I think have been a large part of the, the, the rollback of AQAP on the ground. Um, the Saudis have, in my opinion, been distinctly less helpful. Thank you. I do think this has a lot to do with the competing prioritizations. Yes. And you could put this into, for example, in the larger context of the intra-GCC split as well. Countries will see an opportunity to deal with a problem that they've long wanted to deal with. Now, we'll put this in a counterterrorism uh, perspective. We'll use a counterterrorism lens. Uh, even if I would argue, have argued, that the GCC split is a very unfortunate distraction from uh, the counterterrorism efforts, both against uh, the Sunni extremists and against Iranian state sponsorship, uh, getting the parties on either side of that conflict to uh, reprioritize uh, their uh, objectives to align with ours has proven to be uh, elusive. And you can go around the region. Uh, you can look at different countries' uh, perspectives and uh, interventions in Libya. You can look at things that the um, uh, post-Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt has done uh, being in some ways a good counterterrorism partner, in other, in other ways uh, enacting policies on the ground regarding journalists or otherwise that can only exacerbate uh, grievances uh, in the most populous country in the region, uh, similar uh, journalist issues and many others in Turkey. This gets, I think, very much to, to Stephen's theme of these uh, competing priorities that uh, sometimes our allies will see as opportunities knowing that we need things from them. Knowing that Turkey's geography is Turkey's geography, that we will need things from them, that the Europeans want uh, their help in stopping the flow of, of refugees and migrants, that they have some leverage to uh, achieve their prioritized policy goals as well. And therein lies the rub. So we have a lot of 
a lot of work yet to do. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.